Thanks so much for, for inviting me. It's lovely to be here. It's a, a great event that, that the two of you two have organised, and I'm really sorry I couldn't be here for the rest of the day. I would have loved to have been. Um, I won't bore you with my apologies, um, but uh, I will read the summaries and we'll hear everything, if not only from you know uh, about what was said. Uh, so um, thanks for allowing me to come in late. Um, uh, as I was said, uh, what I want to talk about is uh, uh, my current project, which is on uh, festivals, uh, civic festivals in the aftermath of the Second World War uh, and uh, coming into the beginning of the Cold War. Uh, and I want to talk a little bit about their content, and I want to talk a little bit about how we study them, and I want to talk a little bit about what we might learn from studying them. Okay, so without further ado, um, the period from the end of the Second World War to the beginning of the early 1960s witnessed a series of mass cultural celebrations of freedom and democracy, which stretched right across the newly described free world. So there were grand international events, such as Expo 58 in Brussels. Uh, there were celebrations of national renewal, like the Festival of Britain in 1951, and a multitude of small and regional local fetes, uh, encompassing commemorations such as the first Australia Day in many of the Australian states in 1945 to the rededication weeks of 1947, which stretched across many states of the United States of America. Now, all of these were celebrations designed to transform abstract political ideals into concrete social practices. So there were events which were organized in order to persuade potentially skeptical individuals how it was possible to be a democratic citizen how it was possible to feel free, and how it was possible to enjoy all of the varying sensations that were said to result from the victory of free societies over totalitarian ones. Uh, and when I try to think about this, I often turn uh, to Shakespeare in Midsummer's Night's Dream, where he says uh, what these kind of events do is turn the airy nothingness of highbrow political aspiration into a local habitation and a name. And of course they did so for the most urgent of reasons. The notion was that the free world could resist the totalitarianism of the Soviet East only if the everyday habits and the rituals of the citizenry could be given a democratic hue. So this topic uh, provides the basis for my current research, uh, and I'm writing a, a book which I provisionally entitled Festivals of Freedom, uh, and I intend to examine there all of these post-war efforts to celebrate democracy and forge spirits of freedom. And the project itself has three objectives. First, it aims to analyse how the organisers of these events sought culturally to inspire a free citizenry, how to make them appreciate the political orders in which they lived. Second, it's meant to discover how these events were received by the publics who attended them, asking what it was about these celebrations that resonated so powerfully with disparate individuals and groups spread right out across the globe. And third, and probably most crucially of all for us, it asks what these events can tell us about the very ideals that animated them, i.e. what it tells us about the ideals of freedom and democracy and their relationship to each other. Now, as I've started conducting this research and writing this book, it's been quickly become apparent to me that it's necessary to move out of the dominant frame of most scholarly examinations of this kind of politics in strange places. And that frame has been provided what, by what we might call critical power analysis, variously inflected by Gramscian and Foucauldian theory. So the prevailing approach to celebrations such as the ones that I analyse 
encourages the scholar to study them almost exclusively as, and I quote, exercises in ideological construction and representation, which are integral to the efforts by national elites to preserve dominant relations. Now, there are many studies which, in this vein, uh, which are actually superb. John Bodner and Robert Rydell uh, have written uh, very interestingly about 19, late 19th century, early 20th century festivals from an essentially Foucauldian perspective. But my sense, and what I want to try and argue in today's paper, is that this view includes several crucial aspects of these festivals of freedom. Most of all, an analytical perspective that focuses solely on the conscious or unconscious manipulation of cultural understandings in the service of potentially malign, sectional or exclusive interest prevents scholars from addressing crucial dynamics in the festivals themselves. It blinds us in particular to the remarkable ideological variability, the richness and the diversity of these celebrations to the ways in which their messages actually differed dramatically across time and space. It also blinds us to the consequences of that variability. And most crucially still, it distracts our attention away from the continuing appeal of some of the key aspects of the events themselves. It prevents us, in other words, from beginning to ask how some of the successes of these events might actually assist us in addressing the fundamental dilemmas that democratic theory still presents us with today. So what I want to do in my work then is to approach these events not as instances of manipulation or as parts of some constant attempt to maintain relations of domination, but instead as sometimes well and sometimes ill-intentioned efforts to engender particular kinds of free and democratic political sensibility. Efforts which, as I said, dramatically differed across time and place and which were inflected by sharply contrasting ideological variants. So the analysis that I want to try and conduct is not intended to be immune to the lessons derived from a concentration on power and its perpetuation, not immune to Foucault, but rather its goal is to broaden the range of insights that a study of cultural celebrations of this kind can bring us. So I want to be, and you can tell me whether I am, attentive to historical and ideational contexts within which each celebration occurred. I want to be attentive to the contrasting ideological understandings that underlay them. I want to show you the resonances these understandings and these festivities had in their own societies and beyond. And I want most of all to show the potential points of connection with questions in democratic theory from the past to the present. So by the end of this project, by the time I've written the book, I hope to have contributed to a richer understanding of the complex set of ideologies that constructed the free world in the late 1940s, early 1950s, and to show us the dilemmas of free and democratic commitment as they manifested themselves in these cultural celebrations and as they may still obtain to us today. All right, so what do I want to do today? Um, all right, so rather than carrying on with the methodological discussion in the abstract, uh, which would be interesting but uh, kind of hard to follow at this time of day, uh, what I want to do instead is to provide a couple of examples uh, of what I'm trying to do in hoping that we can tease out some methodological lessons and some kind of philosophical points from so doing. So I want to look at two examples. Uh, I've touched on some of these in previous discussions, but uh, let me just introduce them for those who haven't heard me talk about them before. 
Right, so the first thing I'm going to talk about today, or the first example I'm going to talk about today, is the Festival of Britain. And there is a slide for this one. Uh, here's the Festival of Britain. Uh, there it is. Uh, this uh, is the south bank of the Thames uh, between May and September of 1951, They're opposite the Houses of Parliament. Uh, and it was a festival which took place at the end of the Labour government, the 1945-51 to Labour government. Uh, and it transformed the South Bank into a celebration of what were called British values. And it also constructed a widely successful fun fair a little bit further down the river at Battersea. Now, there was some early scepticism about how the festival would work, um, but it was in fact phenomenally popular. Um, so this London attraction, the, the South Bank, attracted 10 million people in its four-month summer season. And it remained a touchstone uh, for discussions about architecture, about public design, about public political symbolism, about civic meaning for generations to come. And it's a shame Michael can't be with us because uh, Michael uh, can kind of tell you about the meaning of the festival in 1950s popular discussions, uh, you know, and how his family would argue about the festival uh, as he was growing up. So the first thing I'm going to talk to you about is the Festival of Britain. The second event slide I'm going to talk to you about uh, is this one which was the American Freedom Train now the American Freedom Train uh, it was similarly successful it, it, it travelled across the United States uh, in 1947 so four years earlier than the Festival of Britain um, and it brought with it a cargo of original documents that celebrated American democratic institutions uh, it went around the whole of the United States visiting small towns, big cities, and small villages. Uh, and every time it would arrive in a town, it would be accompanied by what was called a rededication week. Uh, and in the rededication week, American citizens were to celebrate the values of American democracy. Uh, at the end, they would put on a freedom fashion show. Where citizens, this is all true, where citizens would celebrate uh, the ways in which they could use their kind of physical appearance to celebrate uh, American values. And throughout the time the train was in your town, there would be accompanying events. There was a Veterans Day for soldiers, Women's Day, the American Family Day, and a Freedom of Expression Day. Now, the train was met with almost frantic scenes wherever it went. It's like the Beatles before the Beatles. Uh, and by the end of its travels, 50 million people had taken part in events uh, to celebrate its arrival in their town or city. Uh, one little example, in Charlotte, North Carolina, 100,000 citizens lined up in one day to enter the train, even though only 8,000 could actually get on. So there were 92,000 disappointed North Carolinians. <laughs> now, the discussion I want to talk about today, I want to examine uh, two, these two events uh, and, and see what we can learn about notions of freedom and democracy from, from studying them. So first, really, what I want to do is I want to ask what these two events can tell us about the ways in which freedom and democracy were differently understood in the United States and Britain at this crucial moment in our political history. And second, what I also want to do is I want to inquire about how they were really received by the publics to which they were addressed and upon which they depend. And then I also want to ask how the unfolding of these events can help inform our current understandings, our current debates in democratic political theory. So what I want to do then is I want to address really a crucial issue to start with, which is what did each of these events mean by freedom and by democracy when they set out to celebrate them in the ways that they did? How did they differ and what might those differences tell us? Okay. Let's start then with the American Freedom Train. So the Freedom Train was born in 1947 out of a deep anxiety regarding the sustainability of American political institutions. 
So there was grave concern in the upper echelons of American politics, across both the left and the right of the political spectrum, that the formal political institutions of the United States might be right, the Constitution might be well designed, but somehow the citizens of the United States might not be quite up to maintaining them. So a huge swathe of American commentary in the late 1940s focuses on the question of a threat to the established rights and liberties of American citizens that comes from the inadequacies, the psychological inadequacies of those citizens themselves. Now these inadequacies were said to have multiple causes. For some, the idea was that Americans were too private, too inward-looking, too individualistic, kind of arguments which we heard ever since Tocqueville. And given this individualism and this privacy, they were incapable of protecting the institutions that they needed uh, to maintain. For others, the tensions in fact came from the new divisions in American society, especially new divisions of race, of religion, and increasingly of class. And so there's a sense here that American society was being riven apart by internal tensions that had been plastered over somehow through the 19th century and the early 20th century and were now coming to the surface after the Second World War. But the most prominent argument emphasized the development of a state of loss and alienation brought about by the joint experiences of depression and war, the Great Depression in the 1930s and the Second World War. So on this account, American citizens have become deeply confused as to the possibilities of the future. And they were in danger of embracing anything that offered clear and definite political answers, however flawed those answers were. So the argument was that post-war citizens suffered from a kind of alienation of loss or confusion that made them easy prey to those selling false certainties in politics or in religion or in any other area of life. But such a spirit of certainty was said to stand against the American spirit of liberty. Now, some of you, most of you, probably all of you, might know the most famous expression of this argument in Adorno's The Authoritarian Personality. And Adorno in that text aims to, quote, develop and promote an understanding of the social psychological factors which make it possible for an authoritarian type of man to replace the democratic type of man. But it wasn't all Adorno. Um, it was also very many more mainstream American social psychologists. So Harold Metz and Charles Thompson wrote a book called Authoritarianism and the Individual, which pursued a strikingly similar agenda. And there's a lovely book by a man called Frank Alexander called Our Age of Unreason, uh, which offers an even more pes un pessimistic take on the same theme. But it wasn't just texts, it wasn't just social psychologists. These were widely held public views. If you go onto YouTube uh, and type in uh, Make Mine Freedom, you'll come up with a wonderful cartoon uh, which was made in 1947. It's a cartoon about an evil salesman called Dr. Utopia who stalks across the United States trying to sell poisonous potions, which he calls isms, to the gullible, depressed, and alienated sections of American society that he comes across on his travels. So Dr. Utopia trying to sell his evil isms to these desperate, lost American citizens. Okay, so that's the culture, that's the context. And it was in that context that the Attorney General of the United States, a Democrat called Tom Clark, came up with the idea of the freedom train. Yeah? And he was going to send this train across the United States uh, to visit and to reawaken the, bless you, reawaken the American spirit. 
So what he, what he planned to do, Tom Clark, and he, and he did, was to bundle the great documents of liberty, the Constitution itself, the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, and send it all around the country for people to see, and then have all of these various other celebrations to try to get them out of their angst, out of their sense of loss and anxiety, and to get them celebrating democratic values once again. He put 130 documents on the train, not personally, but he got people to do that. And he commissioned Irving Berlin to write a song, uh, which uh, was accompanying the train wherever it went, uh, which told eager listeners, inside the freedom train, you'll find a precious freight, those words of liberty, the documents that made us great. <laughs> uh, and uh, they wrote a, a document called The Good Citizen, which was a little booklet which every visitor would get, which would tell you how to be a good citizen. Serious, purposeful stories about freedom and democracy, uh, pious poetry, little, little quips which they got from the Reader's Digest um, about American kind of manliness. Most interestingly of all, I think, they had a pledge, and there's a slide for the pledge. Uh, and the pledge you got when you got to the train, you would get this uh, on, a, on your little card, and you'd have to state it before you'd be allowed to step on to the train. So it says, ask yourself, am I truly a citizen or just a fortunate tenant of this great nation? Uh, here is a summary of the working tools of good citizenship. Pledge yourself here and now to these nine points, that you, your children, and your children's children may continue to enjoy the American heritage of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And then there are nine pledges. I won't go through them all, uh, but they're good ones. You know, Number one, I will vote at all elections. I will inform myself on candidates and issues and will use my greatest influence to see that honest and capable officials are elected. Blah, blah, blah. Number five, that I work for peace but dutifully accept my responsibilities in times of war and will respect the flag. Uh, number six, interestingly, in thought, expression and action, at home, at school and in all my contacts, I will avoid any group prejudice based on class, race or religion. Uh, and then number nine, I will teach practice and uh, the good principles of good citizenship right in my own home. And it ends with the slogan which is everywhere, which is, remember, freedom is everybody's job. The Washington Post said all of this, the pledge, offered a heartening virility to the democratic ideal. All right, so that's the freedom train. That's what freedom is about in the United States. Okay, so like the American Freedom Train, the Festival of Britain, three years later, four years later, was born out of a similar concern to cement the politics of freedom and democracy in a nation traumatized by depression and war. That's the same concern. But unlike in the United States, in Britain, there was no mention of formal politics, formal political practices or institutions. There was no mention of civic duty or civic responsibility on any of the festival's sites. And there was certainly no pledge-making. Instead, the festival was conceived as what its director called a tonic to the nation. It was dreamt up as a celebration of Britishness and a form of rededication to freedom and democracy, definitely, but it was not in any manner concerned with the concrete structures of democracy or the legal practices which make them work. So what was it, if not a celebration of the formal structures of democracy and the legalistic protections of freedom, as we saw in the United States case? Well, if you look at the Festival of Britain, the first thing you notice is that eccentricity and enjoyment are seen everywhere, or at least they're intended to be. So the festival was said to be really about a British sense of fun and enthusiasm. 
So the director, Gerald Barry, told the Daily Mail in 1951, it might even be called an austerity binge. <laughs> the South Bank site was designed with the purpose of stimulating the senses. So, quote, young people especially were said to be inspired by the colour and the texture of the site. Glass and metal, floodlighting and instant landscaping with fountains wherever you looked. The chief architect of the Festival of Britain, a man called Hugh Casson, said that most serious exhibits on the South Bank site must exude enjoyment. So there was a recreation of the British seaside. There was a dancing pavilion. There were sound and music shows. There was the world's biggest television. It was about that big. Uh, there was a giant uh, dome of discovery. But the most important building was this one, which there's a slide for. Uh, this thing here, which is called the Skylon. Uh, and the most important point about Skylon, two points really. First of all, it was designed to look like a rocket, like a Nazi V2 rocket, which of course had dropped on London a few years before. But unlike the rocket, this didn't have a destructive purpose. It had, quote, no purpose. It was just there. So of all the contemporary commentators that I've read, I think it's the poet Dylan Thomas who most grasps the centrality, the net nature of the festival. So Thomas writes, like most, what we like most in it is that it's gay, absurd, irreverent, delighting. It has imagination, it flies and it booms and it spurts and it trickles out of the whole bright broiling. The whole festival site, he said, was from the very smallest stone oddity that squints at you round a small damp corner to the sexless abstract sculpture that serenely exists out of time. It all appears inappropriate. But watching visitors explore the exhibits brings home the issue even more, Thomas said. You see people go briskly along the avenues, towards the pavilion of their fancy, saying, oh, our Humbert's dead keen on seeing that milk separator. And suddenly then they stop as another fancy swings or bubbles in front of their eyes. What is it they see? Small child book painted mobiles along the bridges that at the flick of the wind become a windmill and thrum around like a rainbow with arms. And none of this was intended to be unintentional. So Hugh Casson described his master plan for the South Bank as a space for gaiety, a place for pleasure, a gigantic toy shop for adults intended to be even a little mad. Now, the celebration of pleasure was not the result of some unconstrained hedonism, nor was it simply a question of cheering people up after the war, although I'm sure that mattered a little bit. Rather, the idea was to be not solemn, but nonetheless serious in purpose. Of course it's instructive. Of course behind it is an articulate plan, said Dylan Thomas impatiently. So centrally, it was a celebration of a particular kind of way of being, that was considered central to freedom. That way of being was constructed in opposition to the demands of the industrial world. It captured, I think, the difference between what Michael Oakeshott would later call uh, the distinction between homo faber, man as the maker of things, and homo ludens, man at play, where the former is associated always with externally set targets, with goals, with the expectations of others. And the latter is associated with the spirit of spontaneity, the enjoyment of events just as they are. So freedom on this account was, unlike in the United States, far from anybody's job. Instead, it was an escape from a job. 
Freedom, in Hugh Casson's words, was a brief forgetting of office and of factory. Now, so fundamental was this goal to the festival that the organisers of the South Bank even ensured that the sides of the festival which didn't face the river, i.e. those which backed onto the city itself, were masked by a screen of bright baubles and zigzag shapes which were intended to obscure the bleak working world on the other side. Outside of the festival, Casson wrote, everything is soot and smoke. Inside, the demands of industrial labour will not be felt. But it wasn't just intended to oppose freedom with labour or freedom with industry. Instead, it was also intended to underscore a peculiarly British understanding of what it was to be free. And that was seen most clearly in an exhibit in the festival called The Lion and the Unicorn. Uh, the Lion and the Unicorn set out to tell the story of British national character. It was written by the novelist Laurie Lee. I don't know if anyone's ever read Laurie Lee's novels. But in the exhibit, you walk into the exhibit, there's a large statue made of corn, of a lion and a unicorn, and the placard underneath said, we are the lion and the unicorn, we are the twin symbols of Britain. The lion has solidity and strength, but the unicorn lets himself go. And after that, you walk past uh, recreations of moments in British history. Uh, the signing of the Magna Carta, a diorama of the Tollpuddle Martyrs, the early trade union martyrs, until you reach eccentrics corner, uh, where you're told that the instinct of British liberty is seen best of all in the expressive diversity of our personalities, <coughs> stretching from the rural idiots of folklore to the wild and fantastic creations of Lewis Carroll's Alice. So, reflecting on the festival's purpose, Gerald Barry wrote, in a world given over to violence, it's important to show that a free nation has mind to the creative virtues on which the health of any people must depend. Freedom, in other words, was to be maintained in Britain not by formal structures of government, not by parchment guarantees of rights, not by recommitments uh, to civic duties, but rather by generating a spirit which was willing to explore new avenues and which was highly and healthily sceptical of any claim to authority. Our greatest danger, J.B. Priestley wrote in praise of the festival, is our loss of initiative, zest, energy and life. We need these to survive as a democratic world. And the same message was there at the end of the Lion and Unicorn exhibit, uh, where the unicorn says, hmm, what is the history of British character? Probably part earth, part cabbage. So there's the distinction between these two very different ways of celebrating freedom and democracy and instantiating them in civic festival at the end of the Second World War, beginning of the Cold War. I want just briefly at the end, if I might take another five minutes or so, just to tease out uh, some lessons that we might learn from these stories for today's democratic theory. Now, the fact that visitors came to the festival and to the freedom train in millions has never been in dispute. Nor has it been overlooked that they came from many sections of society that had often been excluded from previous civic festivities. The New York Times wrote about the Freedom Train, many come from lower income groups. These people have fewer blessings to count. They come from sections of the city where labouring people live, from rural areas where dirt farmers work in their own fields, yet they still want to commemorate our liberty. And the same could be said of the Festival of Britain. But what's more frequently overlooked, I think, is precisely how these people came, or to put it another way, the role they played when they got there. 
And to my mind, that's what we can learn most about from both the festival and the freedom train. Because both the festival and the freedom train, different though they were, were entirely dependent on their publics. Visitors were crucial to both events, not because the events couldn't have sustained themselves without them. These visitors aren't just consumers, but because the events in many ways are the people themselves. So as Dylan Thomas suggested, it was not the architects or designers or politicians that mattered most in the Festival of Britain, but the people without whom the exhibition could not exist, nor the country it trombones and floats. And clearly the, clearly the same was true of the Freedom Train. It might have been expected then that these celebrations would have drawn on an idealised public and would have given the visitors to them some preordained role. Perhaps they could have asked them to take upon themselves distinct characteristics of abstracted citizens, unencumbered by personal idiosyncrasy, narrative or allegiance. Now that's, I think, what most contemporary late 20th century democratic political theory would lead us to expect. Would lead us to think that we would have an idealised public sphere, as being described and lionised by Hannah Arendt at the same time where people might be encouraged to forget of themselves as individuals and think of themselves as participants in some mass civic celebration. To separate the particularities and contingencies of the everyday in comparison with the universalism and the impartialism of the new public and civic sphere. So seen in that way, democratic ideals might oppose what we do as members of society from what we do as members of the polity. Democratic life might be dependent upon a utopian universality. Right. Hopefully what's clear is that neither the festival nor the freedom train are anything like that. Indeed, quite to the contrary, both events presented visitors with opportunities to bring crucial components of their own lives, previously excluded by political celebration, directly right into the heart of the commemoration of the democratic spirit. So it's their own distinctive individuality, the rhythms, cares and concerns of their everyday life, which became part of the show. They were encouraged and enabled to explore their own sensibilities, celebrate their own desires, even while they were asked to celebrate democracy, even while they were being asked to rededicate themselves to American or British values. So here, in these two festivals, citizens were able to keep the rhythm of their own lives, whilst living it out against the backdrop of public value. The role that they were asked to play by both festivities was the most important one that they could have in a free and democratic society, that of themselves. Now, this role was encouraged in many ways. Most straightforwardly, it was elicited from the self-consciously everyday and domestic scope of the material which was available in both festivals. So there was lots of excitement and lots of kind of whiz-bangery at both. But most of the things which went on were utterly mundane. Quote, The South Bank paradoxically reinvents the democratic city in the image of the home. So said the cultural critic Alan Powers at the time. And these are two categories which generally have been opposed to one another. Same is true in America. For most people visiting the Freedom Train, the New York Times wrote, they bring their entire family. It is a family affair. Most Nashville parents, for example, brought their children. Some children brought their parents and led the way through the train, pointing to things that they might have studied at school. In the South Bank, 
Some complained that the South Bank was swamped with children. Children are our most important spectators of all, J.P. Priestley insisted, because they reinforce, first, the sense of fun that is so crucial to the festival, and second, because they connect its grand democratic narrative to the everyday experiences of people across the nation. One child festival-goer, uh, Wendy Bonus, wrote in her autobiography, Latterly, she took great joy in getting lost in the dome of discovery. And that recreation, I think, captures much of the spirit of the event. So it's the intrusion of private and personal into public and political, which is so crucial to these, both these events. And they were strikingly transgressive as they did so. And I'll just a little example. Sexuality plays a crucial role in both of these events. Now, this isn't new. Uh, there have been lots of sexual expression in the world fairs in the late 19th century and the early 20th century. But the train and the festival brought the importance of citizens' sexuality right into the official space of democratic celebration. Sexuality is more than a passing blessing. It was given prominent place in both. A couple of examples. Uh, in this Festival of Britain, uh, it was the first time uh, that many people had seen skirts up above the knees as festival celebrations created gorgeous drum majorettes who were asked to parade up and down singing patriotic songs. I don't make this up. Uh, they created a game called Tip the Lady and Tip the Boy, where attractive young men or women were balanced on stands and toppled off into vats by people throwing up them rubber balls with Union Jacks on them. The Festival Freedom Train had similar displays. In Brooklyn, New York, young women were encouraged to apply the reddest lipstick they could find to kiss the train so that it could carry their imprint across the entirety of the United States. Now, such manifestations of sexuality have been insightfully deconstructed, I think, by latter-day commentators, especially those of a critical theory school. But the story is not quite as simple as their formulation generally allows. For although there was something the regressively gendered about these prescriptions, not to mention heteronormativity. Nonetheless, these moments of sexualized entertainment encouraged visitors themselves to break free, free of the constraints of proper conduct generally associated with the political and display the kinds of conduct that they associated with their own home, their own leisure, and their own free spaces. As Mark Warner has so lovely written, lovely written public displays of sexuality open a wedge to the transformation of social norms that require only its static intelligibility or its deadness, generally speaking, as a source of political meaning. Okay, let me bring it to conclusion. In a strikingly, series, a strikingly perceptive series of reflections on whether it's possible to be free in a democratic society, the American novelist Ralph Ellison once remarked, that jazz seems to provide the best symbol of what it is to be free. The problem, he continues, is that what it is important to do is to live by both an extreme code of withdrawal, which courts the rejection of the values of respectable society, at the same time as replacing our abstract and much betrayed ideals with much more real ones. Values of eating, drinking, copulating, Loyalty to friends, the values of dedication to our art. There's nothing wrong with these values per se, Ellison concludes. In fact, it's precisely these values, these most simple aspects of our personal lives, which we want to see given free reign in a democratic society. The problem is that our politics 
all too often hides them, represses them, ignores them, places them outside of the scope of polite political society. So what troubled Ralph Ellison then was the strategy of withdrawal lost the possibility of a communal experience whereby citizens celebrated living together rather than apart and where they could recognise that their fates were shared rather than different. So the problem of freedom in a democracy, Ellison insisted, was the puzzle of how to live as the one you recognise and as the many that you want to be a part of. So in concluding these thoughts, Ellison argued that musicians get something right. They realise that in order to be free, each democratic citizen must be able to partly define himself for who he is and for who he desires to be, but also to find the multiple ways in which we can connect through acceptable stories with others. To be democratically free, citizens must be able to explore and express themselves in a way that's compatible with the larger framework of democracy. So this entails that they must recognise that the very rhythms of their life, aspects which seem so personal, are also shared by citizens in a common polity, by the inheritance of norms and ideals across generations, from living political traditions, from the opportunities we get together to pursue occasionally at least a common good. Now, so for Ellison, that's the puzzle. Freedom and democracy is about bringing the rhythm of everyday life, our personal, our repressed, our private everyday life, into some kind of symphony with others. So being a free citizen in democracy involves finding a way of living within or between the constant tensions of individuality and communality, personal hope, shared story, psychological desire, noble political purpose. So what events like the Freedom Train and the Festival of Britain might tell us is something about how to construct a politics of this sort. They show us in particular that there have been moments in the relatively recent public histories of our countries when citizens have been encouraged and enabled to come closer to developing the sensibilities that are necessary to living with the paradoxes of remaining individual, remaining particular, remaining physical, and at the same time inhabiting political, shared, noble spaces, spaces which celebrate a common past and a common future. Everybody felt it was their show, Hugh Casson said of the Festival of Britain, with a magnificent ambiguity between the singular and the collective. Everybody felt it was their show, both singular, both collective. And it's the securing of this precarious achievement that I think that these events might offer us some lessons for our contemporary democratic theory. And that's why I think it's valuable to share, study these politics in strange places. Thanks very much.